Our text this morning is Luke 4, verses 1 through 13. Luke 4, 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And when they, when they were in, or, and the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone." And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we consider your word this morning, I ask that uh, you would expose our hearts, expose uh, where we run to, what we're looking for when we fall into temptation. Uh, God, I pray that you would help us understand the way of escape. Uh, Father, give us the faith to trust you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, like I said earlier, we're going to start, we're going to camp out on this text actually for four weeks. Uh, We're going to do a little series on uh, temptation. I feel like just by the providence of God uh, through kind of what we've been studying on Wednesday nights, through what I've been just going through in my normal Bible reading plan, uh, I feel like God has given a lot of helpful insights uh, into uh, winning the battle at the moment of temptation. And so what I want to do is introduce this text to you this week, and, uh, and, and we'll kind of take a look at it from afar, uh, but then I want to give you three principles that I think Jesus used to defeat Satan's temptations here uh, that we'll then go to next week. We'll look at the first temptation. The following week, we'll look at the second And the week after that, we'll look at the third. They each have their own unique uh, flavor of temptation, you could say. But I want to give you the practical, uh, almost application first, or or the three questions I want you to ask at the moment of temptation. And then as we go the next few weeks, I I want us to kind of apply it, think about it see how it would work practically in our lives. Uh, So, temptation. 
In Genesis 4-7, Jesus says to Cain, right before he kills Abel, he said, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Sin is crouching at the door. It wants, it doesn't have your best interests in mind. It's contrary to you. You must master it. You must rule over it. How? What do you do when you come to the moment of temptation? And by the way, we're tempted when we're, we feel pressured, when we feel vulnerable. When you're content, it's tough to be tempted. But if you're feeling stressed or if you're under pressure or you have anxiety or someone's accusing you, now all of a sudden the temptation to turn to idolatry raises. You see, we're always tempted. Every temptation is a temptation to turn away from God and turn to idolatry. Something in the creation. So what do you do in that moment? Some of you might know when you're being tempted and you might say a prayer, maybe, God, help me. What, what plan do you have, though, to escape temptation, to escape sin that seeks to destroy your life? Are you confident that you know what you want to do and what you're going to do? When you're preparing taxes and you could, you know, maybe get a little bit more? Or when you're in a difficult marriage and you could fill in the blank? Or when even you're eating a meal, you're full, you know you don't need no more, but there's more there. You're a mom who has kids, you're stressed, you've been with them all day long, and there's the temptation to do maybe a hundred things in that moment. Yell and scream, go to Facebook, escape the world, go shopping online, fill in the blank. Maybe it's go despair. You're a man who's finally alone, You've been stressed, and now in a moment, in a, with the click of a mouse, you can be so far away fulfilling a sexual fantasy. How about you receive a reward and they hand you the mic? It's your turn to talk. All these are moments of temptation. What are you going to do? How about this? This is a tough one. You've maybe had the worst couple months of your life. The circumstances of life are difficult, and your Christian brothers and sisters come to try to encourage you that God is good, and you just want to punch them. It's the last thing you want to hear. 
All these are opportunities and temptations to turn away from God. Now, what we see in this particular passage is we see Jesus in a stress situation. He's in the wilderness. He's there for 40 days, and he's been fasting for 40 days without food. And the devil knows this is a good opportunity. If he's ever going to get Jesus to fall, this place is a good spot. He also knows that in the garden might be a good spot. Moments of pressure, moments of stress. Temptation turns up the ante. But here Jesus is. He's led into the wilderness by the Spirit, and the devil, at the end of these 40 days, tempts him three times. There's similarities in these three temptations, and there's differences. The first temptation, verses 1 through 4, turning a stone into bread, is basically the category of temptation of fulfilling your fleshly desires now. Just whatever you crave, go get it. If you're hungry, eat now. If you crave sex, go get it now. If you crave recognition, put something on Facebook and get likes back now. It's the idea of being pleasured immediately and the lie of Satan in it, and this is what we're going to look at next week, is that all as you are is flesh. It's all you are. You just satisfy your desires. If you're hungry, eat. If you're horny, have sex. Get on the internet. That's all you are. You're flesh. But Jesus counters that with the Word of God. The second temptation is the temptation for Jesus to receive all authority over the kingdoms of the earth immediately. And I think this is actually a temptation I would call idolatrous morality. You see, Satan knows Jesus is good, and so he tempts him. Right now, I'll give you all power so that good can happen on this earth. I can stop doing what I'm doing, and you can have it now. You just have to worship me. God can't be a part of it. It's the temptation to do good things apart from God. And you and I do it every week. It's moral. It's good. But God has nothing to do with it. In in a sense, it's the temptation to spiritual pride. It's a lie you can do good apart from glorifying God in whatever you're doing. The third temptation is a temptation for Jesus to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple. Satan's getting smart here. He's realizing Jesus is quoting Scripture and defeating the first two temptations that way. So he uses scripture and twists it and says, throw yourself off this building and God will 
God, God will grab you. If you're the son of God, do this. Here's what the scripture says. God won't let you hit your foot against a stone. He quotes Psalm 91. And the temptation is that Jesus must test to see if he really is the son of God and if God's word is really true. See, it's a temptation to doubt God's word, the same as Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. So these are the three temptations. We're going to go through each individual one in uh, the upcoming weeks. And it's interesting. The three temptations can come in a positive sense. You need relief now. You need good now. And you need to be sure that God's word is true now. Those all sound good. That's the positive way of of looking at those temptations. That's why they're real. Satan's crafty. He's good at what he does. So here's what we can see from afar. And we've done a lot of this already in Luke, so we're not going to spend a lot of time to do this. But what we see is Jesus comes out of these temptations totally victorious. And from this point on, the demons, every time they come into contact with Jesus, they're begging for mercy. <laughs> In a sense, Satan's already been defeated. He's thrown the best he could against Jesus. He continues to test, tempt Jesus. But Jesus comes out victorious right at the beginning of his earthly ministry. And Luke's shining out to us, Christ is the one that is better than Adam. He was not deceived where Adam was deceived. And what we see in this text also is that Christ is the greater Moses or the true Israel. And I just want to show you that uh, real quick. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3 with the first temptation. 6.13 with the second temptation, and Deuteronomy 6.16 with the third. So he quotes out of the book of Deuteronomy, which happens to be during the wilderness wanderings in, in uh, uh, Deuteronomy. So Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days, and he's studying when Israel was in the wilderness during that time, because these are the verses that are coming to mind. He's a real man. He has to study the Scripture. He has to memorize the Scripture. And these are the Scriptures that come to mind. Now, uh, in Exodus 4.22, here's how Israel is described as God's talking to Moses when he's telling him what he's going to say to Pharaoh. He says, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Israel is repeatedly called God's firstborn son. So God's son is in the wilderness for 40 years, and Jesus is in the wilderness for these 40 days. So there's making a connection that this is the greater Israel. In fact, if you were to look at Matthew's gospel, 
here's how chapter 1 of Matthew goes. You don't need to turn there, but you have the birth of Christ, the special child. And if you're a Jew and you're reading Matthew, you're realizing this is the one. This is the better Adam. This is the better Moses. This is the true Israel because a special child is born. And then Christ has to flee to Egypt. Joseph and Mary need to, to avoid the murderous efforts of a wicked ruler. So Moses is a special child born in Israel And he needs to be put in the river so that he can go down to Egypt and find refuge. And there's two wicked rulers that are afraid their kingdom is going to be challenged by God's firstborn son. And so you would start to connect the dots right away. But then we have the baptism of Christ in chapter, in Matthew chapter three, just as Israel was brought out of Egypt, they went through the sea. In the New Testament, uh, uh, in the New Testament, Paul describes this as a baptism coming through the sea. And Christ's baptism is in Matthew 3. And then right after the baptism, the Spirit leads Christ into the wilderness, just as God, through Moses, led Israel into the wilderness for 40 years and the Spirit led Christ into the wilderness for 40 days. Right after they, uh, Christ is in the wilderness for 40 days in Matthew, then you have the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus goes up on the mountain and what we know is after Israel was in the wilderness, Moses went up on the mount and got the Ten Commandments. All that to say, one of the things we can see is this Christ is the one everybody's been waiting for. He is the Messiah. So, let's get to the three questions that uh, we want to ask when we face temptation. And we're going to see these the next few weeks in our text, but I'm going to take you elsewhere today. I want to show you what God's been showing me in other parts of the Scripture in regards to uh, overcoming temptation uh, and idolatry. So when the pressure's on, the next time you feel tempted, you feel like you need immediate relief, you're feeling stressed, you're about ready to be tempted to turn somewhere other than God, I want you to ask yourself three questions. Who am I? Who is God? And whose timing? Whose timing are you going to follow? So first, who am I? If you notice... Back in Luke 3.22, at Jesus' baptism, the Father spoke out of heaven and said, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. If Jesus was going to ask the question, Who am I? God has spoken out and said, You're, 
You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus knows who he is because he knows what the Father has said. Now, let me tell you something. Your identity is going to be probably the most key component of winning any temptation you face. If you think right about who you are in Christ, the temptation will begin to disintegrate. So it's no wonder that in Luke 4.3, the devil comes to Jesus and says, if you are the Son of God, well, what do you mean if? God just said you are. But the devil comes and right away tries to get Christ to doubt who he is. He tries it again in Luke 4.9. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. But I'm going to argue the next few weeks that Jesus knows who he is. He's a, he doesn't need to ask the question. He doesn't need more proof than God's word. He knows who he is. Now, here's how this works. If you know who you are in Christ, you know that God cannot do better for you than he's already done. If God did the hardest thing, he's already made you, he gave his son the most costly thing for you to die in your place. In Romans 8, Paul argues that in Christ, you're actually adopted sons into his family. And then he argues that if you are, if, if, if God gave his son for you, how will he not also with him give you all things? And in that same text, he argues God was doing good for you before you were ever born and that everything works together for your good. So if you know who you are, what does temptation offer? Temptation is saying you're lacking. You need something else. And the truth for the Christian is, my cup is full. God cannot do better to me than he has done to me. The lie is that he's holding out on you. That was what he convinced Adam and Eve of. Oh, God knows you're going to become wise. You thought he was good. He's holding out on you. You're not full. But if you ask the question, who am I? And you're full in Christ. You're brought into the presence of God through Christ. And at the Father's right hand are pleasures forevermore then you don't need whatever alternative pleasure that you're being tempted to go after because you will know who you are. The second question that we ask after we ask who we are in Christ is who is God? I promise you, that in every temptation you're in, the reason why you're there and the reason why it has real grip 
is because you're doubting God's goodness, the goodness of God. Who is God? If God's holding out on you, then you need to go take care of yourself. You need to go run to these other things. God doesn't have it under control. In a sense, you have to worship the creation rather than the creator. If the creator has not done good to you, then you have to go get it somewhere else. In Hebrews 11.6, you don't need to turn there, but I want you to listen to me. This is what faith is. Now, here's the thing. Jesus defeats all of the devil's temptations without using his supernatural powers. He defeats it by faith in God's word. What God says about him by faith in the fact that God is good and that he's doing good to Christ. Hebrews 11.6 says this about faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. So at the moment of temptation, you have a faith battle. For who would ever draw near to God must believe that he exists. Now, I doubt in the moment of temptation, you're going to be willing to at least say that you don't believe God exists. It is true sometimes that you don't. The man who's getting ready to click on pornography would not click on pornography if three or four of his buddies was sitting right around him or his wife. But when he feels alone and as though God doesn't exist and he is alone and he's in a room, well, then he jumps into the temptation. But I think... The harder thing, even believing that God exists at the moment of temptation, is this, the second part of this. He must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Do you really believe at the moment of your greatest pressure and you feel like I need instant relief right now, that if you turn to God, he will be better than this other thing that's quick, it's easy, you can see it, Do you really believe that he's the rewarder of those who turn this way? Because when you fall in temptation, Christ doesn't look like a rewarder. God doesn't look like a rewarder. God doesn't seem good anymore. That's why you go, you always go where you see reward. You will. That's where you will go. I want you to turn to Matthew 6 with me. And this was just incredible for, as I just was just going through my Bible reading. It's like these, all these dots begin to connect with Hebrews 6, uh, with the temptation of Christ. Matthew 6. Now this is right smack dab in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that takes up about two and a half chapters. And I want you to see that in the center of this sermon, Jesus, with all he has, is trying to say, you got to know my Father is a rewarder to those who seek him. See, if you were to glance through chapter 6 in your Bible right now, and 
you look at it, you're going to think it's about doing works and prayers and being anxious. If you read the subtitles, which, which aren't inspired, someone else put those in there, you're going to see these as chopped up different teachings of Christ. But I'm going to argue that all of chapter 6 has this one punch to it that's basically trying to convince people that God is good and that he's worth turning to in the moment of pressure. And you're really going to see how big a deal Jesus knows your identity is. Because if you don't find your identity from him, Jesus knows you're going to try to find it in getting a response from other people. The number way, number one way people try to build their identity outside of Christ is they try to put their talents and their goodness on display so other people say, oh, you're good, you're nice, you're this, you're that. That's why people put stuff on Facebook to get likes. Oh, good. Oh, they liked it. They're, I need identity. He knows this. So look at this. Look at verse 1. We're just going to read this quickly, but I, I just want to point out the theme. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people to be seen by them, to get your identity from them. For then, what does it say? You will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Did you see the emphasis? Jesus is saying, you want reward, don't you? You don't want to lose reward, do you? Don't get your identity from other people. Do your good works in secret because God sees in secret and he will reward you. God, my father's good is what Jesus is saying. And then verse five, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. The Father will reward you, and He's actually wise. He knows what you need. He will give it to you. And then, He says, gets to the Lord's Prayer. You might think, well, now this is the Lord's Prayer section. No, this is Jesus showing this is the needy prayer that sees that all reward comes from God. That all glory shouldn't come to us through our praying or our giving, but God's name shall be hallowed. Your kingdom come, your will be done. 
Now look at this. Give us this day our daily bread. We don't think we're going to get it somewhere else. You give it to us, God. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. (laughs) Isn't it interesting? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So what does temptation look like? Look at verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What he's getting at here is that the unforgiving have been tempted and have fallen into evil by believing, by not believing God's goodness to them. So the person who doesn't forgive someone else has been fallen into the temptation to believe that they actually have not been forgiven. Because the one who knows they've been forgiven, the one who's seen God is good, can win the temptation and actually forgive his brother, not fall into the evil. Look at verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but your Father who is in secret, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then it seems like maybe he transitions to a different topic, but he doesn't. He just changes up the angle. He's basically now going to say, don't seek reward from other people. That's what he's already said. But now he's saying, don't seek reward from the earth, from things, but that God is better. Because look at verse 19. Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's the thing. In the moment of temptation, in the moment of pressure, you are going to go to treasure. And whatever you go to is a flashing red light saying, here's where your hope is. Here's where you think reward is. But he says, don't find your treasure in what's only temporary, what moth and rust will destroy. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If your eye sees God as holding out on you and as a God who doesn't reward and doesn't know what you need, then you'll be filled with darkness and you'll turn and fall into temptation. Does your eye see God as a rewarder or as a fun Nazi who's holding out on you? That's how a lot of Christians think. I know God's real, but he doesn't want what's good to me. C.S. Lewis tells a story about his dog that he would walk 
And he said, we would always walk down this sidewalk and there would be a lamp pole. And the reason why he was telling this story, it's actually a letter he wrote to his friend that was struggling with homosexual desire. And his friend basically asked, why does God want to withhold from me that which is good, what would actually make me happy? And Lewis writes him a letter back in his own brilliant way uh, to illustrate this. He's walking the dog, and they're going down the sidewalk, and every time they'd get to this light pole, the dog would try to go around the one side of the light pole and would get himself wrapped in there. So as they would be walking, he'd about go around the light pole, and he would jerk back the leash to get him back around. And Lewis says, I can always tell the dog's frustrated with me and looks at me like, what are you doing? Why do you always yank me right here? He said, here's the thing. I want to go forward, and the dog wants to go forward. But from my perspective, I know that if the dog tries to go forward that way, he'll wrap himself in that light pole and ultimately strangle himself to death. I want what's good for the dog. I just know that you can't get it that way. So I yank him, and I pull him back. See, at the moment of temptation, as you are considering denying this idolatrous substitute, it might feel like God's yanking you away from it. But you have to ask yourself the question, is God good? Does he want me to get reward? Does he want me to have happiness and to get to a good place. And then he gets to verse 25. If any of you have struggled with anxiety or worry, as I have in my life, this is probably a go-to text, but I hope this text opens up even wider as you see how it fits in the whole of Matthew 6. Jesus says, therefore which links it to what he's just been saying. This isn't a separate section. I tell you, do not be anxious about your life and what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about the body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food? Ah, that's what Jesus says to the first temptation. Man doesn't live on bread alone. Life's more than food. We're not just chemicals that just go and just just satisfy every desire. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither soar nor reap in barns, yet your Father feeds them. Your Father's so good. Just look how He takes care of the birds. Are you not a more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, oh, you of little faith? See, the problem of faith is thinking God is not good. Therefore, do not be anxious. What, should, 
What, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Now get this. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. It's not bad to want to eat. But God knows life isn't just eating. It's not bad to want rest. But there's more to life than just rest. The Gentiles live for those things. God knows you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. All of chapter 6, Jesus is saying, don't find your identity in other people. Don't find your pleasure in the things of this world as God knows you need those things. But there's no reward if you go there to rest there. My father's good. He takes care. He'll take care of you. He'll reward you. All right. I want to take you to one more place. 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 7. One more place on this uh, point. He's, 1 Corinthians 10.7. Paul is using Israel's failure in the wilderness to illustrate falling into temptation. And we're kind of picking up mid-argument. But in verse 7 he says, Don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge sexual immorality as some of them did. In 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble because, you know, grumbling doesn't see God as good as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, now here's the key, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure the temptation. And here's the key, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I always thought, well, what's the way of escape? In every temptation, there's a way of escape. I always thought it was some tricky, like, Holy Spirit plan that he brings, but I just miss it or something. But verse 14 is the clue. When he says, therefore, keep yourself from idolatry. The escape at the moment of temptation is God. He's good. Rather than grumble, we'll go to God that's good. At the moment of temptation, you ask the question, who is God? And to finish, I want you to ask this question, who's timing? Who's timing? Because 
Our idols offer quicker, more visible solutions that are easier to attain. It's just a fact. That's why we go to them. They're quick. They're easy. We can see them. But I want you to ask the question, whose timing should you follow? And I want to say, if you know your identity in Christ, that God loved you by Gibson in Christ to you and gave you his identity, and if you know God is good, when you get to the question of timing, I want to ask you to wait on whatever the temptation is. Jesus waited on food rather than fall to Satan's temptation. He waited on ruling over the earth. And he trusted God's word. Let me just give you some psalms, rapid fire. I just want you to hear it. Just listen. I know we're at the end of the sermon. It's easy to check out. Listen. Indeed, Psalm 25.3, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Psalm 25.5, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For I wait, for you I wait the all the day long. Psalm 25.21, may integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Psalm 27.14, wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 31.24, be strong, let your heart take courage. All you wait for the Lord. Psalm 33.20, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Psalm 38.15, but before you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O my Lord, who will answer. Psalm 40, verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. And he inclined to me and heard my cry. Psalm 52, 9. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. Psalm 69, 3. I am weary of my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. And I just want to read Psalm 62 and conclude. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. For how long will you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. That's what it's like hoping in man. For you alone, O God, does my soul wait. Wait in silence, for my hope is in him. He is my only rock in my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation, and my glory, or my glory, my rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. 
Those of lowest state are but a breath. Those of highest state are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion, cheating on your taxes. Set no vain or hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his works. Wait for the God who is good. Hebrews 9.27 says, it is, And it is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus is coming back for not for people who go to church, not for people that are pretty nice. He's coming back to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, fighting the battle of temptation, that at the moment of what's really going to deliver, the battle of God is good. He, even in my wilderness struggle, God is using this for good for me. Those three questions, who am I, who is God, and whose timing? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you that the way of escape is to turn to an absolute fortress a refuge in a rock. God, I pray that you would give us faith to see you as good, even when we're in the wilderness and it's hard and we're hungry and we're hurting. God, I pray that we wouldn't turn to easy substitutes, but that we would wait for you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.